Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the final episode of this season's Centering the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. The topic this season is race and grace, critical race theory and Asian American Christianity. This season is a series of conversations with my friend and neighbor, Dr. Alex Jun, professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University. In this episode, we're going to talk about critical race theory and the future of our nation. Mm, good topic, Daniel. It is fraught, but you know what? This is where we are, right? We need to figure out how as Christians, we think about the aspect of race as it relates to the future of our nation. And obviously, race is one topic. There's so many other issues. We could have talked about environmentalism. We could have talked about economic uh, injustice. There's so many other topics, but we wanted to talk about race here. Now, as most of us might have heard, U.S. will become minority white nation by 2045. And that actually has gotten people excited, to, the, to say the least, or concerned, right? And so let's begin talking about that. Like, how have you seen the reaction to this idea of whites becoming a minority in the U.S. kind of play out like in your circle, Alex? Yeah, it's interesting because I think a common theme that will probably emerge as we're talking in this final episode is that representation matters, but representation is not enough. And here's a good example. If we talk about the census, uh, that we're talking about the majority minority, the majority of people will be non-white. And for the best response I've heard, it's uh, comedian Harry Kondabolu, who's Asian American. And the way that he's approached this whole census thing, he's got a whole series called Waiting for 2042. And part of his argument is fascinating because he says things like, you know, you make it sound like the majority that's going to be non-white is somehow all aligned as if Blacks and Asians have always been teammates, mm-hmm. right? It's just not true. Yeah. It just means, you know, the increasing what, quote unquote, browning of America, the increase and in influx of immigrants from different countries, right? You see this movement of compositional diversity, but that doesn't address notions of power. The census doesn't talk about who are the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. The Mm -hmm. census doesn't talk about how many senators are women of color, people of color, how many people in the presidential cabinet of every university, of every uh, senior pastoral staff at every mega church are non-white, right? So when you look at it that way, it paints a very different picture. Right, and those things cannot change fast, right? Because we're talking about generational, we're talking about the whole system of how you grow people, right? How people develop. I mean, I talk about like in terms of uh, Hollywood that it's it's difficult as like an Asian American actor to develop because, you know, if you're white, you might be a child actor, right? 
because you're a child of this other famous actor because you were talking about white families. So you just get in there, right? You develop and you might be like, hey, I was a child over here. I was a teenager over here. And now I'm actually making a movie. But what happens when you don't have those families? It's like there's a whole kind of uh, uh, ecosystem where you develop and you don't develop whether whether you're going to be a politician or whether you're going to be an administrator. That's what we're talking about. That's not right. just not just representation of what's going to happen with with our demographics, but who has power, who has privilege, who has who is actually in places where they can make decisions. That's right. So let's think about it a different way. We look at certain schools in states like California and other places where they say the majority of the student body because I'm a higher education professor, this come, you know, this is what I talk about every day. The majority of the student body at a place like, oh, say UC Berkeley, UCLA, are majority non-white, right? A large number of Asian students. I said, okay. And that's part of the concern that some people might have when uh, a reason for others to celebrate. Uh, but let's look at the faculty. Let's look at the curricula. Mm. And let's look at the presidential cabinets and the board membership. Right. And then it paints a very different picture. And so the distinction I make in my writings, the difference between PWI, predominantly white institutions, and DWI, dominantly white institutions, really reveals who holds the power, even if compositionally the institution looks different. Right, right. We don't have to go that far back even in our own nation's history, to think that simply by having a critical mass of people doesn't mean they have power. Look at slavery. How many families, white families, own the plantations, right? They were outnumbered by the number of enslaved Africans they had. So who had more people? There were more Black enslaved Africans on any given plantation than there were white owners, of these plantations. And yet, who had the guns and the whips? Who held power? Yeah. Who initiated power and who had a voice? So no, it cannot simply be about numbers. Yeah, in that sense, talking about issues of kind of changing the curriculum. I mean, at Fuller Seminaries, it's you know, talking about our community. We realized that even though the students were coming from everywhere around the whole country, we, we had relatively diverse student body, we started thinking about our curriculum we started thinking about our administration, exactly what you said, right? And that was so difficult to do. So whenever students come, I say, don't just ask about the student body, ask about our curriculum, ask about the diversity of our faculty, ask about who, who the dean is, who, who right. the administrators are on top, right? right? Just what you're talking about into the president's cabinet. Because, and also see what kind of commitments they have, because just once again, visual diversity doesn't mean what you think it means, right? That's right. It's simply because you had a, a South Asian uh, governor in any given state in, say, Louisiana, doesn't necessarily mean that you have greater awareness of racial issues where they're going to address it. That's just one example that came to mind. Well, think about this. So, so this is the idea, right? Uh, so in terms of place of race for the future of our nation, there's one idea who says, you know what? Multiracial people are the solution the problem of racism. We're all going to intermarry anyway. So what's the big, you know, we're, it's going to automatically solve itself. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that idea? Because it's, it's definitely out there. Again, I love the representation and it's important, but the conversation needs to move beyond simply representation. We had President Barack Obama for eight years and everyone said he's our first black president. Um, it was Bill Clinton, apparently. But, you know, we have our first <laughs> black biracial president and then Kamala Harris, first biracial woman of color as vice president. And it fits the narrative so nicely for people who want to tie a bow to our racial issues in this country. 
representation matters, but it is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about senators and Congress and other folks uh, who are either ethnic minorities or they are biracial. And it's not enough for simply to have them in spaces. We might assume that their engagement with racism is the same as my own, but that's a dangerous assumption. So it has to be an ideology that emerges. And so this gives my white sisters and brothers a chance to recognize we're not talking about white people. We're not bashing white people. Because if your ideology and your thinking about injustices is forcing you to make changes, then it doesn't necessarily matter what skin color you happen to be, because we need everybody engaged in this work. And as I thought about this whole idea, you know, I recall this four episode documentary series called The Loving Generation, uh, 1967 Supreme Court decision, Loving versus Virginia, right? Uh, Overturned all the laws forbidding uh, interracial marriages. So we have this whole generation uh, of mixed race folks. And one of the things that came out of this conversation in this multi-episode kind of documentary was talking about the fact that depending on what some of them look like, they still had white adjacency. There's a a particular privilege they had, right? Because they actually were able to experience life in a particular way. And and one of the really interesting things was that so many people out of this loving generation were the people who got promoted, people who were actually in places of power, people, I mean, like people like Obama, right? People who who were all there, where they were on TV. I mean, and it was really interesting, the fact that it wasn't like, the, you know, the black folks, but it was a mixed race folks. They were actually there to represent black folks. Right. So it was like the so there was this whole conversation about what obligation privilege do, do I have as a, as a mixed race person who kind of might be categorized as black to the black community? It was a really interesting conversation. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that really gets into the idea of race being socially constructed and colorism, the lighter your skin. As some of my black colleagues have talked about the paper brown test, uh, the brown paper bag test, you know, are you light enough to pass? Um, You've had privileges even during um, in days of uh, enslaved Africans, those who were darker skinned, you know, were working in the fields, they were still enslaved, but lighter skinned enslaved Africans were working indoors, right? And had some privileges, at least weren't under the burning sun, et cetera. And so colorism within Black communities, colorism within Asian American communities, Mm -hmm. uh, this represents a lot of part of the problem of whiteness, right? And this idea of white dominance and colorism, it's the preferred color. It, you know, it connotes even biblically, right? Um, Some have argued, you know, to, or though my sin was like scarlet, um, now they are white as snow, right? right. right? Um, uh, There's nothing wrong with the cultural context of how that's being used, but um, just the very nature of whiteness and lots of um, ajimas that I know are always striving to like get skin whitening (laughs) products to lighten their skin, literally lighten their skin uh, because it shows a level of, oh, oh, I don't know, um, dignity or um, wealth or, or whatever it may be. So yeah, that's part of the challenge. I think when we think about the nature of whiteness and colorism and this desire to move more and more increasingly toward assimilating toward whiteness. And thinking about this, there's a book called Post-Ethnic America by a historian named David Hollinger. And he's he talks about identity as affiliation, right? So if you keep on having multi-ethnic you know, and multi-racial uh, people, 
identity will become kind of an affiliation. If you're like, hey, you know, do you identify as Asian or not? Because if you're white and Asian or white and black and Asian, whatever, right? And one of the issues that I took with this book was that it ignores the structured dimensions of how society works, right? The phenotypical structures that how that categorize in a particular way. You might affiliate yourself that way in a particular way, but it doesn't mean that the policeman might you know, categorize you that way, right? right. Yeah. So what, how do you, I mean, there are situations where obviously where money can actually buy you a lot of whiteness. Money can get, protect you from a lot, and you can be, you can be really well protected on, on certain things because of what, what neighbor you end up with or what, what circles you find yourself in. But there's still these historical kind of societal forces that whether we want to see it or not, they still exist. Absolutely. I mean, and all the money in the world, it still doesn't protect you from anti-Blackness, right? You hear stories of famous Black women. Oprah Winfrey, you know, anecdotally was in Germany wanting to buy a purse and the person didn't recognize was Oprah freaking Winfrey and said, I don't know if you can afford this purse, right? She could have bought the whole store and then you get a purse and I get a purse. But no, you know, she was denied service because they said, oh, you just look like another Black person. And this was not in the United States. Um, uh, Stories of uh, folks like Serena Williams and um, uh, Beyonce going to the hospital, right? And anti-Blackness in medicine, right? Has been proven. I'm doing a lot of uh, work and consulting in that area these days. um, And you hear these stories. So no, all the money and fame in the world still doesn't protect you from individualized racism or systemic racism. But I think part of the challenge also is the assumptions. We're talking about the future of the nation and the assumptions that even Asian Americans perhaps will hold about an ever-changing demographic, not just multiracial, but I'm thinking about transracial, right? You've got Asian American adoptees um, who are obviously passing as Asian and were born even in Asia, in Korea, in you know, in, in China, what have you, but they were raised in, in completely white communities, um, well-intentioned white parents with maybe mixed race siblings or white siblings. And so the challenges that our transracial adoptee Asian American brethren and sisters have, right, is a whole other level that we need to consider. And that population needs greater awareness and recognition. Part of the beauty of critical race theory is recognizing voices that have long been voiceless Mm. and recognizing groups and populations that have not been recognized. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, I think about all the students and adoptees that actually, people who are students and people that are are adoptees and, and their particular journeys. And that often they struggle because if you're not aware of, of, of this community dynamics, power dynamics within our communities. So uh, the same tools apply, right? It's how, in terms of how, how normativity works, that sometimes within our own communities, we have our own set of normativity and then it can be imposed upon other people where the people feel marginalized. They can't really feel safe, nor can they be really be encouraged to um, make sense of their own identity in a sophisticated way, right? Because there's a litmus test about do you belong or not. That's right. And it's also not just how you happen to identify, but how others in society identify you, right? So th- that's the bigger challenge is when you see an Asian American transracial adoptee, an adult who's walking around, say, in Southern California, will make lots of assumptions of seeing them and say, oh, you, you, you look 
Chinese American or Korean American. I'm going to make certain assumptions about the way you were raised. Um, you know, did you take your shoes off, <laughs> you know, in your home and stuff like that? But if they were raised in a culturally white context, then of course not. Right. Um, that could lead to fun some funny stories, but transracial black citizens don't have that luxury because the way that they're perceived um, could be deadly. Right. And this is the challenge. Right. right. Now, let's, let's think about this idea of U.S. no longer being a dominantly white nation and people connect this thing. This concern with U.S. not being a predominantly Christian nation. So we can talk about that as well, right? Because this idea, what is the politics and idea of U.S. being a white Christian nation. And I've been thinking about this this week, how a lot of minorities, some of the minorities came thinking that U.S. is going to be a white Christian nation. And this is what they wanted, right? This is what they wanted, they desired, because they came from a non-Christian nation. They're like, well, and so they kind of, protect white Christian nationalism for this reason, right? Some minorities support them because they're, they're, this is basically why they've been on the same kind of bandwagon in this sense. That's right. I think part of the challenge was, we can even take this back to Christian missions um, to certain countries where white Christian missionaries were unable to separate for themselves that which was American, that which is Republican, and that which is Christian. Right. And even, quote unquote, first world problems when you're going to developing nations and you think, oh, the, the streets are, you know, undeveloped and the sewage system needs work. Boy, they really need Jesus. Well, those are two separate ideas. Right. <laughs> um, uh, to say that someone who is, you know, economically impoverished does not also mean that they are spiritually impoverished. Those are two separate things. And examples of uh, North America where people are economically very wealthy and partly due to their economic wealth are spiritually impoverished. So much so they don't even know, they don't recognize how mm. impoverished they are spiritually, right? But because they enjoy all the benefits of the materials that happen in a uh, quote unquote first world society, they assume that God has blessed us, right? And that's part of the problem with the God bless America theology, that we're tying it to material wealth and health and, mm. and national power, military might. I'm yeah. not convinced that that is a Christian answer biblically. Yeah, this is conflation of multiple ideas. The fact that here is kind of white rule or, or white normativity along with Christianity as a norm, and they're all kind of like all conflate together. And so if you lose one, you're going to lose the other. Or maybe, I mean, we can talk about even that. Well, there's that idea. And there's the idea of what does it mean to be a Christian nation? Do we do we want to be a Christian nation? So we'll basically address that slightly later. But this conflation of whiteness and Christianity, I mean, that's a weird idea in one sense, but it's actually so common. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'm going to go to the missions example, uh, having spent three years in Cambodia and talking to South Korean missionaries who I felt like they, they simply perpetuated a white Western idea of Christian nationalism. Um, so here's how it goes. Cambodian Christians who are, you know, sort of the early stages of the church, um, the modern church of Jesus Christ here in Cambodia, uh, we're looking to South Korean Christians and white American Christians uh, saying, we pray for Cambodia because we want to be like South Korea. After the gospel came into South Korea, South Korea prospered 
right? And became one of the top uh, GDPs in the world. And of course, they would get that from, they got it from North America. When U.S. missionaries went and shared the gospel, look how good the U.S. Mm. is doing. I think we can recognize now in hindsight, both South Korea and the United States of America, not doing very well spiritually when it comes Mm. to the global church. And yet that narrative is hard to shake. And so the danger of this conflation of an economic uh, prosperity gospel along with Christianity is problematic. And so the folks that you've shared the gospel with who want to come to the United States because it is, quote unquote, a land of opportunity, gets misinterpreted also with the land of milk and honey. Those are two completely separate ideas. Yeah, and the fact that U.S. kind of, because of our media, portrays the nation in a particular way, right? So the fact that U.S., I mean, our media, our movies, it's gotten a little bit better, but it's been portraying itself as this white nation for so long. So, I mean, you know, you see immigrants who come over and they're surprised about the fact that the nation is not as white as it, it seems to be on TV or in terms of the movies. So that's a different issue altogether. Now, think about this per- very particular example. Uh, because both of us are Christian and both, both of us, interesting, are, are reformed as well. I mean, I'm not, I don't actually play nice with Dutch reform, but we're both reformed. So this idea, right? So oh, yeah. Republican Senator uh, Josh Hawley of, uh, of Missouri, he was really active and supportive of the January 6th uh, insurrection. <laughs> and, you know, before he actually quoted Dutch Reformed theologian and prime minister, I want past prime minister, Abraham Kuyper. This is actually a pretty, pretty famous quote, right? Yeah. I mean, Kuyper's quote is, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Right. So all, every, I mean, we've been talking about supremacy and sovereignty of Christ. So this is something we believe in, right? So, That's right. So we Amen. get that. Okay. But then here he is, and this is actually where he talks about this. So this is his quote. He says, we're called to take, take that message to every sphere of life that we touch, including the political realm. He says, that's our charge to take the Lordship of Christ, that message into the public realm, to seek the obedience of the nations and of our nation. And then he supports the insurrection as a result of this. And so a lot of, I mean, a lot of, uh, I think, non-Christians and in, in, and our media have, have criticized him and said, what, what does this mean? What is this sovereignty theology, ideology that actually is supporting Christian, uh, white Christian nationalism? That's what, right. are you, what are your thoughts about that I mean, as a reformed theologian, right? Or as a, as a reformed Christian and for myself as a reformed theologian, I'm, I'm, I have thoughts about this as well. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? When we talk about the dangers of critical race theory and yet fail to talk about the dangers of white nationalism um, and white supremacy in the church. And here's a good example of it. And for the record, I disagree with the senator. So it, it helps to say that up front. I disagree okay. with the good senator from <laughs> yeah. Missouri. Cynically, you know, this the argument would be then somehow white Christian fundamentalists succeeded in taking the capital where Islamic fundamentalists failed during mm-hmm. 9-11, right? Uh, if we were to use that as an example, right, to say what what is it about trying to take a nation in the name of your God, right? Mm -hmm. This is the problem with white nationalism. If it were true, 
that this was a Christian nation. And if it's true that Senator Hawley wants to take the lordship of Christ in obedience of the nation, as he says, then why are we treating strangers and immigrants the way we do if mm -hmm. we are a Christian nation? Yeah, right. Yeah. Because in scripture, if we're to follow it, I was a stranger and you welcomed me is the biblical mandate. I was a stranger and you deported me is the American mandate. Hmm. But those are two different standards. If yeah. we were a Christian nation, I think we'd lean more, more toward the former, not the latter. So you're already inconsistent in your application of trying to be a Christian nation. Yeah, I mean, picking and choosing once again, right? This is what you said all over, all over, I mean, over and over again. What do we pick and what do we choose? What do we emphasize? Do we have the same kind of standards to how we look at scripture, how we apply uh, biblical concepts and, and principles to our lives? If we're going to talk about U.S. as a Christian nation, what does that even mean, right? And, and are we going to pick and choose what applies to us and what does not? Absolutely. I mean, I, and this is the danger of, you know, potentially fat shaming, which could be uh, problematic in and of itself, but folks who've been talking about the dangers of oh any given topic, you know, on race and calling people names uh, for talking about race, have failed to recognize all the passages on gluttony <laughs> in Scripture. Right? I mean, why do we pick and choose? Why do we pick and choose? So that it's just an ongoing issue um, if we want to take the totality of Scripture and in, and take seriously that every square inch is mine, as, uh, as Kuiper once said. Yeah, because we have deeper roots here about race and reform theology, especially, particularly Dutch reform theology. Uh, you know, and I, mean, I know you've done some research on this in terms of apartheid, obviously. We'll talk about South Africa, yeah. Right, South Africa, because I mean, we can, we can always point fingers, but that's actually kind of a mirror, right? And saying, what does it look like when we, uh, when South Africa was established, Dutch reform theology was deeply ingrained in South Africa and Africanas, right? So this idea of apartheid, which is actually a kind of word for saying apartness, right? Apartness, you're separated. Right. I mean, it's fundamentally rooted in Dutch reform theology. What's weird and bizarre, it's apartheid lasted for like, you know, like 50 years or 40 years. And when Nelson Mandela, was, who was in prison for a long time, finally was released and he was able to lead the nation uh, in South Africa to a different direction, he literally took out Christianity, right? In the new constitution and saying, wait a minute, we have to acknowledge the fact that Christianity here is not the gospel Christianity. Christianity here is, is an ideology that's been oppressing people. It's weird how we can not see the fact that how we think about Christianity, it can actually function in this oppressive ideological way so far from the gospel. Even though we're using the same kind of words, spiritual words and using the Bible, it can function in a way that totally oppresses people and ends up being, I mean, it's like the whole idea of the devil knows more, you know, Bible inside out. It's not like he doesn't know the Bible, you know, he doesn't know scripture. Yeah. It's, it's the intention and how scripture functions, right? Right. Uh, so it's fascinating for me as we talk about South Africa, I have lots to say my, my most recent book, working with Christopher Newman and Christopher Collins, is addressing um, global white supremacy and anti-blackness in universities in South Africa is one of the examples, right? And so, yes, we can talk about apartheid, which is sort of a modern concept, but anti-blackness was in place 
for generations before that, hundreds of years before uh, the formalization and institutionalization of apartheid. You think about the curse of ham theory, right? Dutch reformers holding on to Kuyperian theology, but also anti-Black in their approach. Let's unpack it a little bit, because I mean, you know, you and I are familiar with this idea of curse of ham idea, but let's unpack it a little bit because it's it's been so... Uh, so widely spread. I mean, even in terms of how a lot of uh, early Americans justified slavery was this idea of her curse of ham. So can we, let's unpack it a little bit for our listeners. Yeah. You've got ham, Jephthah, and whoever the other guy was. Uh, Shem. Yeah. Yeah. Shem. And so, uh, and they uncovered their father's nakedness, right? Ham was one of sons of Noah. Sons of so, Noah. Yeah. Who would I say? Sorry. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just okay. clarifying. So ultimately discovering father's nakedness led to a curse and said, you will be cursed and you are going to be subservient to your brothers, right? The argument goes that he was cast out, Ham, that is, of the three sons was cast out to an area that apparently is, you know, black people, right? Mm-hmm. And so the argument is, well, this, this is a result of the curse, of Ham. Um, and so descendants of Ham will be subservient to Shem and Jephthah. Um, and that was the biblical justification. When you see blackness, this is the curse. I mean, it's like kind of random because it doesn't say that, 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 uh, that Ham is black. Right? It's just imposed upon. And then you have a biblical justification now. So it seems like what you're doing is according to the word of God. That's right. That's right. And now you've empowered through theology and the word of God, all of the work that you're doing for social injustice and racial injustice. And so that just uh, makes it also spiritually abusive. So you think about good reformed uh, Dutch reformed people, good Christian people who love the Lord and were anti-black in their approach, you know, find a, to find a new place to live. They go to a place like uh, Table Bay, South Africa, trying to make eke out a living and wars between the Afrikaners, the, you know, the Dutch who became the Afrikaners, the British, the French, everyone's getting involved. The Portuguese were there first and everyone's fighting with other nations to claim this land that was never theirs. <laughs> Meanwhile, You've got the the Osa and the Zulu and the Bantu who were there uh, since the first century, but everyone disregarded the native peoples, right? And so it's just fundamentally anti-black. And then they discovered diamonds and gold in South Africa. And so then that led to this movement. So good capitalist Christians, right? This is not only a problem with uh, Christian nationalism and what went wrong. You look at the dangers of capitalism and your desire for uh, triumphal uh, life here on earth. So this is what emerges in South Africa. And if I could say one other thing, Stellenbosch University, one of the few universities that continues to speak Afrikaans and always had. Uh, since the very beginning, since the founding of the uh, institution in the 1800s, a fascinating institute of higher education because they wanted to preserve both their language and culture. And of course, there was no distinction between being white Afrikaner and being Dutch and reform. Right. And actually, this is one of the uh, issues, right? Because in Dutch reform theology, people can talk about, well, here's a cultural difference because actually a development of, of theology of culture and Dutch reform theology. It's almost as though you're talking about cultural difference. Therefore, people are not going to get along. And then they use that and they refuse to see the fact that this, there's a racial power dimension as well. Right. You define things by culture and distinction 
whether uh, instead of seeing the fact that there's actually a long history of oppression in based on race. I mean, this is actually, I think, part of the problem of how Dutch reform categories can kind of uh, blind people to racial injustice. Yes, that's right. And the, the maneuvering that's required in your theological interpretations or your theological misinterpretations of Christian doctrine to justify enslavement and subjugation of others. It's interesting because, you know, talking about South Africa, South Africa could be perhaps for some a, a good or bad example of what Christian nationalism can look like. South Africans perhaps look to the United States on how they can perfect apartheid movements, right? Because <laughs> they looked at how civil rights were not enforced or civil injustices yeah. for Black folk. So we were teaching each other <laughs> how to how to subjugate other uh, image bearers uh, for the sake of our own benefit. I think it's interesting the fact that uh, the history of critical race theory, I mean, the early critical race theory, when it starts, it starts out by critiquing civil rights movement and civil rights agenda and saying well, what's happened here and how that ends up not being radical enough, not seeing really what the issue is and the solution that were proposed under, under civil rights. That's right. right? So yeah. when you read with kind of Derek Bell and, and Crenshaw, they're, they're talking about the fact that civil rights doesn't, is not really framing the radical, the basement issues in a sense. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, this all ties in and goes back full circle when we were talking about loving versus Virginia, right? Where people are critical of critical race theory to say, oh, you keep talking about laws as if they're unjust, right? We had policies, anti-miscegenation laws that black and white could not marry, right? <laughs> this was true in South Africa as well. Uh, and so it was actually laws that institutionalized racism and anti-Blackness, right? And so this is what critical race and critical legal scholars have been trying to argue. But for you to then criticize that, to say, well, you can't criticize laws because those are rock solid. Friends listening, if you are a law and order person, you have to recognize how even laws have changed. Hopefully mm -hmm. you see this for the better. But to say that only the bad laws have been eradicated and now only the good laws remain is still foolhardy. But going back to South Africa as the example, and we were talking earlier about uh, compositional adversity with 2042, South Africa is a great example of the minority having all the power. Right, right. And it was the white South Africans who had all the power during apartheid. And it was the black South Africans who had no power, but clearly had the numbers. Yeah. I mean, once again, these problems are, are so historically embedded, they're not going to be solved just by changing who's in power, right? They've had like uh, different black presidents over there, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's going to solve the problem. You know, so, so we're talking about South Africa and an example that comes up, I mentioned Harry Kondabolu earlier, so I'll go with uh, another comedian. I think about, uh, did you ever read Born a Crime? <laughs> It's, I mean, he's hilarious, right? What's his name? Noah? Trevor Noah? Yeah. Yeah, Trevor Noah. Incredible. Trevor Noah gives this example that I think could be helpful here because when people say, look, the laws changed in the United States in the 60s or in 1990s with um, the end of apartheid, the laws changed and therefore everything is now equal. 
Well, Trevor Noah, and I encourage readers, uh, listeners to read his book or listen to it on Audible. It's really, really good. Trevor Noah tells the story of how he was a, a DJ and he went to different places to do his DJ and dancing and all this with his crew. And because they received Bantu education, right? Most of the education was very, very elementary, just basic enough so that Black South Africans can do menial work, sort of skilled labor, but they didn't give them real formalized education. And so they had names for themselves. They, they came up with what were white sounding anglicized names. So Mussolini and Hitler were some of their names. And so there's a story where, and if you listen to it on Audible, it is incredibly good. Well, I remember this because my wife was listening to it. So he's talking about, he goes to this one place and he goes, are you ready for Hitler? Go Hitler, go Hitler. And you know, you hear like the record scratch and everyone stops dancing. And a woman comes running out, the headmaster, whoever it is, comes running out and saying, you vile creatures, we defeated you once, we'll defeat you again. And uh, Trevor Noah's like, what's wrong with this white lady? Defeat us? Oh, I see, you're racist, right? You're, you're saying because we're black and we're starting to be successful. And it turns out it was a Jewish school. Oh my God. For you to start screaming Hitler in a Jewish school is Lord. problematic. Okay. My question, whose fault is it? Whose fault is this, right? Mm. To simply say that the laws change, that means everything is okay, but you yeah. have the remnants of miseducation on multiple levels and you end up with this space. That's what we're talking about right now. What does the future look like in this nation if we don't continue to talk about race critically? People are still gonna think that Italians like Christopher Columbus discovered America, right? Yeah. That's problematic. I'm mean, thinking about the reform tradition. So much of our theology developed under the Christian mentality where it was assumed the fact that we would have political power. It was the fact that it, Christianity will be normalized. Soren Kierkegaard talk, talks about the fact that being a citizen of a particular Christian country, like Denmark for, in this case, was just part of uh, being baptized and being a citizen were the same thing, right? So in some sense now, Christianity has actually gone down. You know, in the, in the numbers, we have a lot of people who are leaving the church. And this confusion in our tr tradition, the reform tradition, for example, that actually had Christian mentality for so long that we couldn't really distinguish what does it mean to be a church without the nation being Christian. Yeah. And actually, is that a, even, a, even isn't a biblical idea? This is where I have looked to the Anabaptist tradition, even as a reformed theologian, I've looked at the Anabaptist tradition and saying, wait a minute, this is really helpful because they think about power and they think about national identity very differently and saying, was this really biblical to think about political power as given by God? That's right. Yeah. I think one of the best pruning mechanisms, though it's been quite painful in the United States in the last several decades, one of the best pruning mechanisms is sniffing out cultural Christianity, not mm. cultural Marxism, cultural yeah, yeah. Christian right? Um, that we, we can't separate our, our nationalism from our faith. And I think uh, you look at Europe and the UK as a good example of what a quote unquote post-Christian nation, right? In say in, anywhere in the UK, it might actually help true believers in their faith because there's no if there's a clearer separation between my personal faith in Jesus and what's happening in my country, 
Yeah. U.S. has not experienced that yet. We're still a young country in that regard. So we're going through these um, the ebbs and flows of nationalism. But I think increasingly, it could be a healthy thing in the long run that we start separating cultural Christianity from true spiritual Christianity. So in other words, separating Republicans from Christians is one way of looking at it. Sep separating Democrats from Christians could be another way of looking at it, right? So then you've got the political movement, and then you've got the spiritual and those are going to be increasingly separate. Yeah, and it's weird the fact that we think it's great the fact that these politicians are talking Christian language, but it, it actually, in a, in a different sense, it's actually very dangerous yeah. to talk, talk about it as though America is, you know, force of God's kingdom. I'm like, well, look, we want the U.S. to do great things. I mean, there's like, I, there's no other place. For, personally, for me, I would, there's no other place I would, I would want to be. I, I, I like the fact that I'm American. But I don't want to confuse that by thinking the fact that whatever the U.S. does is ordained by God or it's going to be a good thing. That's right. Right. The fact that we can be very critical about, about how, what the U.S. does. And no matter how much we talk about the U.S. in Christian language, I mean, is it really beneficial to have a politician who thinks, talks about U.S. in Christian language? Or a person who does not like for you know Jewish you know a politician or whatever right yeah but, or who, talk, who doesn't talk in that language or or basically a Muslim you know politician I just think about the fact that this actually is very dangerous where we conflate our civic kind of identity yes with our Christian identity and we think they're the same thing and if one's threatened we worry the fact that other one will be threatened as well. Yeah. Uh, a, a friend and colleague of mine at uh, USC, Shafika Amadi and uh, Darnell Cole wrote a book called Islamophobia in Higher Education. The book is not for Christians. Mm -hmm. The book is for Americans, right? American yeah, higher yeah, education. Yeah. It's right. not a Christian higher education, but it's really hard to separate sometimes that which is Christian and that which is American when it comes to, here's a good example of uh, Islamophobia and some of the laws and policies um, that we've seen in the country. I'd like to think that we can hold to these two realities, right? Multiple realities. And this is where I may have said this before, but F. Scott Fitzgerald famously once said, uh, the test of a first rate mind is to be able to hold on to two seemingly contradictory thoughts at the same time, right? How can you still embrace all the benefits of patriotism and like appreciating your country and civic duty and also recognizing that it perhaps has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, in that same light, Kayati Josie, who's based an Asian American scholar and educator, she did this book called White Christian Privilege. Yeah. Right. The fact that there actually is a privilege that comes from race. There's a privilege that comes from race. There's a privilege that comes from being a Christian. And of course, I mean, we've injured it to some degree. Right? If we were Muslim, we actually would face a different kind of uh, difficulties and challenges and oppression in the U.S. And I think this is where we don't realize the fact that this actually is bad for the church. This kind of privilege is bad for the church because it uh, confuses what Christian identity means in relation to social benefits of it, the fringe yeah. benefits of it. I was talking to a missionary in uh, Kazakhstan and talking about the fact that, you know, some of these people here, they spent spend a couple of years thinking through it. Do they want to be a Christian or not? And when they do, they know it's serious. They, they know it's something that's actually really consequential for their lives. That's right. Right? That's right. As opposed to saying, well, I guess I'll be a Christian. This idea of kind of uh, Christianity being part of assimilation. Well, we're in the U.S., I guess we'll go to church because that's what Americans do. I mean, some of these immigrants come and they're like, being an American and being Christian is something that helps your social, uh, social capital in a sense, right? Social climbing. So you want people to be Christian and that 
fundamentally hurts the church. That's right. I mean, this is the where I have to recognize and confess my own blue passport privilege, right? And the assumptions that I have as a citizen of the United States, as a Christian in the citizens of the United States, I've lost a lot of global context of what sisters and brothers in Christ are doing and suffering around the world. Christianity is supposed to be suffering. And when you think about where Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, there will be trouble. They understand that in ways that North American Christians like us don't. And I think it's okay to recognize that. I don't share that to shame us. I don't share that to make us feel guilty or bad. It's a mm. statement of fact that in the global church around the world, most of Christianity means persecution and suffering, not triumphalism and victorious uh, living. And so that that is also part of the challenge. But yeah, you had mentioned something earlier about, oh, yes, we, you know, you were talking about the uprising January 6th. And if you, and I made the reference to 9-11. And it's interesting when you think about what happened in 9-11 versus what happened in January 6th, two fundamentally different responses, right? After 9-11, we had Muslim bans, we had threats to Arab American citizens, um, and even Sikh brothers and sisters, mm. uh, mosques were being firebombed and uh, graffiti and people were randomly being attacked because they looked like a terrorist or Muslim. And then in January 6th, in the aftermath of what happened, right, were we worried about random acts of violence toward white Christian men ages 18 to 20, 18 to 60? No. Were we worried about churches being firebombed as a result of this invasion of the capital by white Christians? No. Mm. Were we worried about a Christian ban from other nations, right? Because maybe they're coming to the United States under the guise of being an international student, but really they were sleeper cells of, <laughs> of, of, of white Christian nationalism. None of that happened. And it's because of fundamental misunderstanding that we have, and it's tied to our own Christian nationalism that we fail to recognize. I mean, in the end, this whole season has been this idea of thinking critically about race, right? And the tools that we get from critical race theory, just how it serves us. It serves us to see these powers and principalities that we live in, how it uh, determines so much of our lives, how it's infiltrated our educational system. I mean, the, 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 the principalities of race, right? So we're trying to see it. We're trying to critically see what's happening so we can do something about it. And that's being attacked. And so I think uh, as we kind of wrap up this episode and this whole se season, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about how we should grow and what the next steps might be for our listeners? I think first and foremost, let me begin and end with this. We need a healthy dose of humility, a healthy dose of humility that perhaps everything that I held onto and believed may not all be correct. Um, and to recognize that even the world and some philosophies help us to think and recognize challenges that we fail to recognize before. That's on an individual societal level. From a global perspective, the Church of Jesus Christ for North American Christians, we need to understand where we are in a global context. And it's an incredible dose of humility for us to know that what God is doing around the world may have nothing to do with what the Lord is doing in the United States, but the Lord is still working. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and don't make the assumption that only when it happens in the United States is God working. Yeah. But if God's working outside of the United States, I really don't pay attention. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been such a pleasure. It's been a blast actually spending this much time with you. So much fun. Thank you so much, our listeners, for joining us. This is the last episode of this season on race and grace talking about critical race theory in the Asian American church. We're grateful for all of you. Thank you so much. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Thank you for joining us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.